welcome to An Adventure of One's Own, a podcast where we explore autobiographical accounts of female travellers and adventurers in their own worlds. I'm your host, Kylie Weber. Today we're travelling with Nellie Bly. Good morning, listeners. I'm sneaking in a quick recording session before the NBN installer turns up to give me Wi-Fi. I'm actually invoking Sod's law hoping that while I press record, he gets here early and I get my internet. Alright, so last episode, Nellie Bly hatched her plan to race around the world. She set sail on the Augusta Victoria and was promptly horribly seasick. And I really sympathise with that. I get terrible motion sickness on everything. Planes, boats, kayaks cars, trains, video games. I can't play video games because I get motion sickness from them, so I sympathised a lot with her struggles. I did appreciate that luggage was still a huge problem, and I think that will be until the end of time. Uh, Thank God we don't have to travel with trunks anymore. And I did quite like her uh, depiction of the irrepressible gossips that she met on board the ships. Everyone is so very invested in what one another is doing. And I'm pretty sure that would still be the case on a cruise ship today. Possibly not today today, but currently people are still gossips in confined spaces. I do have some feelings that she's very privileged. Um, She does everything at the last minute and demands everyone else do their best to suit her what suits her. And that that's a bit jarring. Her journeying aesthetic of travelling exceptionally light also puts that burden of swift performance onto other people. And it's a bit amusing, but I think she has the perfect managerial approach. Here's my problem. Go resolve it for me. It's due by lunchtime. Thanks. Something else that I found quite aggravating as a modern human being was the, I think it was two different men who insisted on pushing themselves into her business and taking it upon themselves to do chivalrous things for her. I Anyway, that's just my approach. I think chivalry is better off dead, because what they currently claim it to be is not actually chivalry. It's requiring someone else to emotionally appreciate an action you did not ask for. But we'll continue on. Episode 2 Having departed New York, Nellie Bly has disembarked and is on her way to London, in the company of the London correspondent. Time is very tight on this trip, but while they're on the train, he tells her that Jules Verne, the creator of Phileas Fogg and famous French author, has asked if she can visit him in France. Three, Southampton to Jules Verne's. Mr. and Mrs. Jules Verne have sent a special letter asking that if possible you will stop to see them, the London correspondent said to me as we were on our way to the wharf. Oh, how I should like to see them, I exclaimed, adding in the same breath, isn't it hard to be forced to climb such a treat? If you are willing to go without sleep and rest for two nights, I think it can be done, he said quietly. Safely? 
without making me miss any connections? If so, don't think about sleep or rest. It depends on our getting a train out of here tonight. All the regular trains until morning have left, and unless they decide to run a special mail train for the delayed mails, we will have to stay here all night, and that will not give us time to see Vern. We shall see when we land what they will decide to do. The boat that was landing us left much to be desired in the way of comfort. The only cabin seemed to be the hull, but it was filled with mail and baggage, and lighted by a lamp with a smoked globe. I did not see any place to sit down, so we all stood on deck, shivering in the damp, chilly air, and looking in the grey fog like uneasy spirits. The dreary, dilapidated wharf was a fit landing place for the antique boat. I silently followed the correspondent into a large, empty shed, where a few men with sleep in their eyes and uniforms that bore ample testimony to the fact that they had slept in their clothes were stationed behind some long, low tables. "'Where are your keys?' the correspondent asked me as he sat my solitary bag down before one of these weary-looking inspectors. "'It's too full to lock,' I answered simply. "'Will you swear you have no tobacco or tea?' the inspector asked my escort lazily. "'Don't swear,' I said to him. Then, turning to the inspector, I added, "'It's my bag?' He smiled, and putting a chalk mark upon the bag, freed us. "'Declare your tobacco and tea, or tip the man,' I said teasingly to a passenger who stood with poor, thin, shaking homie under one arm, searching frantically through his pockets for his keys. I fixed him, he answered with an expressive wink. Passing through the custom house, we were happy by the information that it had been decided to attach a passenger coach to the special mail train to oblige the passengers who wished to go to London without delay. The train was made up then, so we concluded to get into our car and try to warm up. A porter took my bag, and another man in uniform drew forth an enormous key with which he unlocked the door in the side of the car instead of the end, as in America. I managed to compass the uncomfortable long step to the door, and striking my toe against some projection in the floor, went most ungracefully and unceremoniously onto the seat. My escort, after giving some order to the porter, went out to see about my ticket so I took a survey of an English railway compartment. The little square in which I sat looked like a hotel omnibus and was about as comfortable. The two red leather seats in it ran across the car, one backing the engine, the other backing the rear of the train. There was a door on either side, and one could hardly have told that there was a dingy lamp there to cast light on the scene, had not the odour from it been so loud. I carefully lifted the rug that covered the thing I had fallen over, curious to see what could be so necessary to an English railway carriage as to occupy such a prominent position. I found a harmless object that looked like a bar of iron, and had just dropped the rug in place when the door opened and the porter, catching the iron at one end, pulled it out, replacing it with another like it in shape and size. "'Put your feet on the feet warmer and get warm, miss,' he said, and I mechanically did as he advised. 
My escort returned soon after, followed by a porter who carried a large basket which he put in our carriage. The guard came afterwards and took our tickets. Pasting a slip of paper on the window, which backwards looked like Etevirp, he went out and locked the door. How should we get out if the train ran the track? I asked, not half liking the idea of being locked in a box like an animal in a freight train. Trains never run off the track in England, was the quiet, satisfied answer. Too slow for that, I said teasingly, which only provoked the gentle inquiry as to whether I wanted anything to eat. With a newspaper spread over our laps for a tablecloth, we brought out what the basket contained and put in our time eating and chatting about my journey until the train reached London. As no train was expected at that hour, Waterloo Station was almost deserted. It was some little time after we stopped before the guard unlocked the door of our compartment and released us. A few of our fellow passengers were just about starting off in shabby cabs when we alighted. Once again, we called goodbye and good wishes to each other, and then I found myself in a four-wheeled cab, facing a young Englishman who had come to meet us and who was glibly telling us the latest news. I don't know at what hour we arrived, but my companions told me it was daylight. I should not have known it. A grey, misty fog hung like a ghostly pall over the city. I always liked fog. It lends such a soft, beautifying light to things that otherwise, in the broad glare of day, would be rude and commonplace. How are these streets compared with those of New York? was the first question that broke the silence after our leaving the station. They're not bad, I said with a patronising air, thinking shamefacedly of the dreadful streets of New York, although determined to hear no word against them. Westminster Abbey and the Houses of Parliament were pointed out to me, and the Thames across which we drove. I felt that I was taking what might be called a bird's-eye view of London. A great many foreigners have taken views in the same rapid way of America, and afterwards gone home and written books about America, Americans, and Americanisms. We drove first to the London office of the New York World. After receiving the cables that were waiting for my arrival, I started for the American legation to get a passport as I had been instructed by cable. Mr. McCormick, secretary of the legation, came into the room immediately after our arrival, and after welcoming and congratulating me on the successful termination of the first portion of my trip, sat down and wrote out a passport. My escort was asked to go into another part of the room until the representative could ask me an important question. I had never required a passport before, and I felt a nervous curiosity to know what secrets were connected with such proceedings. There is one question all women dread to answer, and as very few will give a truthful reply, I will ask you to swear to the rest first, and fill in the other question afterwards. Unless you have no hesitancy in telling me your age. Oh, certainly, I laughed. I will tell you my age, swear to it too, and I am not afraid. My companion may come out of the corner. What is the colour of your eyes? he asked. Oh, certainly, I laughed. 
I will tell you my age. Swear to it too, and I am not afraid. My companion may come out of the corner. What is the colour of your eyes? he asked. Green, I said indifferently. He was inclined to doubt it at first, but after a little inspection, both the gentlemen accepted my verdict as correct. It was only a few seconds until we were whirling through the streets of London again. This time we went to the office of the Peninsula and Oriental Steamship Company, where I bought tickets that would cover at least half my journey. A few moments again, and we were driving rapidly to the Charing Cross station. I was faint for food, and while my companion dismissed the cab and secured tickets, I ordered the only thing on the Charing Cross bill of fare that was prepared, so that when he returned his breakfast was ready for him. It was only ham and eggs and coffee, but what we got of it was delicious. I know we did not get much, and when we were interrupted by the announcement that our train was starting, I stopped long enough to take another drink of coffee and then had to run down the platform to catch the train. There is nothing like plenty of food to preserve health. I know that cup of coffee saved me from a headache that day. I had been shaking with the cold as we made our hurried drive through London, and my head was so dizzy at times that I hardly knew whether the earth had a chill or my brains were attending a ball. When I got comfortable seated in the train, I began to feel warmer and much more stable. The train moved off at an easy-going speed, and the very jog of it lulled me into a state of languor. I want you to see the scenery along here. It is beautiful, my companion said, but I lazily thought, what is scenery compared to sleep when one has not seen bed for over twenty-four hours? So I said to him very crossly, don't you think you would better take a nap? You have not had any sleep for so long, and you will be up so late tonight that really... I think for the sake of your health you had better sleep now. And you? he asked with a teasing smile. I had been up even longer. Well, I confess, I was saying one word for you and two for myself, I replied, with a laugh that put us at ease on the subject. Honestly now, I care very little for scenery when I am so sleepy, I said apologetically. Those English farmhouses are charming, and the daisy-spotted meadows, I had not the faintest conception as to whether there were daisies in them or not, are only equalled by those I have seen in Kansas. But if you will excuse me, and I was in the land that joins the land of death. I slept an easy, happy sleep, filled with dreams of home, until I was waked by the train stopping. We change for the boat here, my companion said, catching up our bags and rugs which he hauled to a porter. A little walk down to the pier brought us to the place where a boat was waiting. Some people were getting off the boat, but a large number stood idly about waiting for it to move off. The air was very cold and chilly, but I still preferred the deck to the close, musty-smelling cabin beneath. Two Englishwomen also remained on deck. I was much amused at the conversation they held with some friends who had accompanied them to the boat and now stood on the wharf. One would have supposed, by hearing the conversation, that they had only that instant met, and having no time to spend together, were forced to make all further arrangements on the spot. "'You will come over tomorrow now, don't forget,' the young woman on the boat called out. "'I won't forget. Are you certain you have everything with you?' the one on the wharf called back. "'Look after Fido. 
Give him that compound in the morning if there's no appearance of improvement, the first one said. You will meet me tomorrow, said number two on shore. Oh yes, don't forget to come, was the reply, and as the boat moved out, they both talked at once until we were quite a distance off. Then simultaneously the one returned to her chair, and the other turned around and walked rapidly away from the wharf. There has been so much written and told about the English Channel that one is inclined to think of it as a stream of horrors. It is also affirmed that even hardy sailors bring up the past when crossing over it. So I naturally felt my time would come. All the passengers must have been familiar with the history of the Channel, for I saw everyone trying all the known preventatives of seasickness. The women assumed reclining positions, and the men sought the bar. I remained on deck and watched the seagulls, or what I thought were those useful birds, useful for millinery purposes, and froze my nose. It was bitterly cold, but I found the cold bracing until we anchored at Balloon, France. Then I had a chill. At the end of this desolate pier, where boats anchor and where trains start, is a small, dingy restaurant. While a little English sailor, who always dropped his H's and never forgot his Sir, took charge of our bags and went to secure accommodations for us in the outgoing train, we followed the other passengers into the restaurant to get something warm to eat. I was in France now, and I began to wonder now what would have been my fate if I had been alone as I had expected. I knew my companion spoke French, the language that all the people about us were speaking, so I felt perfectly easy on that score, as long as he was with me. We took our places at the table, and he began to order in French. The waiter looked blankly at him, until, at last, more in a spirit of fun than anything else, I suggested that he give the order in English. The waiter glanced at me with a smile, and answered in English. We travelled from Boulogne to Amiens in a compartment with an English couple and a Frenchman. There was one foot warmer and the day was cold. We all tried to put our feet on the one foot warmer, and the result was embarrassing. The Frenchman sat facing me, and as I was conscious of having tramped on someone's toes, and as he looked at me angrily all the time above the edge of his newspaper, I had a guilty feeling of knowing whose toes had been tramped on. During this trip, I tried to solve the reason for the popularity of these ancient, incommodious railway carriages. I very shortly decided that, while they may be suitable for countries where little travelling is done, they would be thoroughly useless in thinly populated countries where people think less of travelling 3,000 miles than they do about their dinner. I also decided that the reason why we think nothing of starting out on long trips is because our comfort is so well looked after that living on a first-class railway train is as comfortable as living at a first-class hotel. The English railway carriages are wretchedly heated. One's feet will be burning at the foot warmer, while one's back will be freezing in the cold air above. If one should be taken suddenly ill in an English railway compartment, it would be a very serious matter. Still, I can picture conditions under which these ancient railway carriages might be agreeable, but they are not such as would induce a traveller to prefer them to those built on the American model. Supposing one had measles or a black eye, then a compartment in a railway carriage made private by a tip to the porter would be very consoling. Supposing one was newly wed and was bubbling over in ecstasy of joy, 
then give one an English railway compartment where, just two made one can be secluded from the eyes of a cold, sneering public, who are as just as great fools under the same conditions, although they would deny it if one told them so. But talk about privacy! If it is privacy the English desire so much, they should adopt our American trains, for there is no privacy like that to be found in a large car filled with strangers. Everybody has and keeps his own place. There is no sitting for hours, as is often the case in English trains, face to face and knees to knees with a stranger, offensive or otherwise, as he may chance to be. Then, too, did the English railway carriages make me understand why English girls need chaperones. It would make any American woman shudder with all her boasted self-reliance to think of sending her daughter alone on a trip, even of a few hours' duration, where there was every possibility that during those hours she would be locked in a compartment with a stranger. Small wonder the American girl is fearless. She has not been used to so-called private compartments in English railway carriages, but to large crowds, and every individual that helps to swell that crowd is to her a protector. When mothers teach their daughters that there is safety in numbers, and that numbers are the bodyguard that shield all womankind, then chaperones will be a thing of the past, and women will be nobler and better. As I was pondering over this subject, the train pulled into a station and stopped. My escort, looking out, informed me that we were at Amiens. We were securely locked in, however, and began to think we would be carried past when my companion managed to get his head out of the window and shouted for the guard to come to our release. Freed at last, we stepped out onto the platform at Amiens. Chapter 4. Jules Verne at Home Monsieur Jules Verne and Madame Verne, accompanied by Mr. R. H. Sherard, a Paris journalist, stood on the platform waiting our arrival. When I saw them, I felt as any other woman would have done under the same circumstances. I wondered if my face was travel-stained, and if my hair was tossed. I thought, regretfully, had I been travelling on an American train, I should have been able to make my toilet en route, so that when I stepped off at Amiens and faced the famous novelist and his charming wife, I would have been as trim and tidy as I would have if I had been receiving them in my own home. There was little time for regret. They were advancing towards us, and in another second I had forgotten my untidiness in the cordial welcome they gave us. Jules Verne's bright eyes gleamed on me with interest and kindliness, and Madame Verne greeted me with the cordiality of a cherished friend. There were no stiff formalities to freeze the kindness in all our hearts, but a cordiality expressed with such charming grace that before I had been many minutes in their company, they had won my everlasting respect and devotion. Monsieur Verne led the way to the carriages which waited our coming. Madame Verne walked closely by my side, glancing occasionally at me with a smile, which said in the language of the eye, the common language of the whole animal world, alike, plain to man and beast, I am glad to meet you, and I regret we cannot speak together. Monsieur Verne gracefully helped Madame Verne and myself into a coupé, while he entered a carriage with the other two gentlemen. I felt very awkward at being left alone with Madame Verne, as I was altogether unable to speak to her, her knowledge of the English language consisted of no, and my French vocabulary consisted of oui. 
So our conversation was limited to a few apologetic and friendly smiles, interluded with an occasional pressure of the hand. Indeed, Madame Verne is a most charming woman, and even in this awkward position she made everything go most gracefully. It was early evening. As we drove through the streets of Amiens, I got a flying glimpse of bright shops, a pretty park, and numerous nursemaids pushing baby carriages about. When our carriages stopped, I got out and gave my hand to Madame Verne to help her alight. We stood on a wide, smooth pavement before a high stone wall, over the top of which I could see the peaked outlines of the house. Monsieur Verne was not long behind us. He hurried up to where we were standing and opened a door in the wall. Stepping in, I found myself in a small, smoothly paved courtyard, the wall making two sides and the house forming the square. A large, black, shaggy dog came bounding forward to greet me. He jumped up against me, his soft eyes overflowing with affection. And though I loved dogs, and especially appreciated one's loving welcome, still I feared that his lavish display of it would undermine my dignity by bringing me to my knees at the very threshold of the home of the famous Frenchman. Monsieur Verne evidently understood my plight, for he spoke shortly to the dog, who, with a pathetic droop of his tail, went off to think it out alone. We went up a flight of marble steps, across the tiled floor of a beautiful little conservatory that was not packed with flowers, but was filled with a display just generous enough to allow one to see and appreciate the beauty of the different plants. Madame Verne led the way into a large sitting-room that was dusky with the early shade of a wintry evening. With her own hands she touched a match to the pile of dry wood that lay in the wide open fireplace. Meanwhile, Monsieur Verne urged us to remove our outer wrappings. Before this was done, a bright fire was crackling in the grate, throwing a soft, warm light over the dark room. Madame Verne led me to a chair close by the mantel, and when I was seated she took the chair opposite. Cheered by the warmth, I looked quietly on the scene before me. The room was large, and the hangings and paintings and soft velvet rug, which left visible but a border of polished hardwood, were richly dark. On the mantel, which towered above Madame Verne's head, were some fine pieces of statuary in bronze, and, as the fire frequently gave bright flashes as the flame greedily caught fresh wood, I could see another bronze piece on a pedestal in a corner. All the chairs, artistically upholstered in brocaded silks, were luxuriously easy. Beginning at either side of the mantel, they were placed in a semicircle around the fire, which was only broken by a little table that held several tall silver candlesticks. A fine white angora cat came rubbing up against my knee, then, seeing its charming mistress on the opposite side, went to her and boldly crawled up in her lap as if assured of a cordial welcome. Next to me in the semicircle sat Mr. Sherard. Monsieur Jules Verne was next to Mr. Sherard. He sat forward on the edge of his chair, his snow-white hair, rather long and heavy, was standing up in artistic disorder. His full beard, rivaling his hair in snowiness, hid the lower part of his face, and the brilliancy of his bright eyes that were overshadowed with heavy white brows, and the rapidity of his speech, and the quick movements of his firm white hands, all bespoke energy, life with enthusiasm. The London correspondent sat next to Jules Verne. With a smile on her soft, rosy lips, Madame Verne sat nursing the cat, which she stroked methodically with a dainty white hand, 
while her luminous black eyes moved alternately between her husband and myself. She was the most charming figure in that group around the wood fire. Imagine a youthful face with a spotless complexion, crowned with the whitest hair, dressed in smooth, soft folds on top of a dainty head that is most beautifully poised on a pair of plump shoulders. Add to this face pretty red lips that opened to disclose a row of lovely teeth and large, bewitching black eyes, and you have but a faint picture of the beauty of Madame Verne. This day, when she met me, she wore a sealskin jacket and carried a muff, and on her white head was a small, black velvet bonnet. On taking her wraps off in the house, I saw she wore a watered silk skirt, laid in side plaits in the front, with a full, straight black drapery that was very becoming to her short, plump figure. The bodice was of black silk velvet. Madame Verne is, I should judge, not more than five feet two in height, Monsieur Verne about five feet five. Monsieur Verne spoke in a short, rapid way, and Mr. Sherard in an attractive, lazy voice that translated what was said for my benefit. Has Monsieur Verne ever been to America? I asked. Yes, once, the answer came, translated to me. For a few days only, during which time I saw Niagara, I have always longed to return, but the state of my health prevents my taking any long journeys. I try to keep a knowledge of everything that is going on in America, and greatly appreciate the hundreds of letters I receive yearly from Americans who read my books. There is one man in California who has been writing to me for years. He writes all the news about his family and home and country as if I were a friend, and yet we have never met. He has urged me to come to America as his guest. I know of nothing that I long to do more than to see your land, from New York to San Francisco. How did you get the idea for your novel, Around the World in Eighty Days? I asked. I got it from a newspaper, was his reply. I took up a copy of La Cie one morning, and found in it a discussion and some calculations showing that the journey around the world might be done in eighty days. The idea pleased me, and while thinking it over, it struck me that in their calculations they had not called into account the difference in the meridians, and I thought what a denouement such a thing would make in a novel, so I went to work to write one. Had it not been for the denouement, I don't think I should ever have written the book. I used to keep a yacht, and then I travelled all over the world studying localities. Then I wrote from actual observation. Now, since my health confines me to my home, I am forced to read up descriptions and geographies. Monsieur Verne asked me what my line of travel was to be, and I was very happy to speak one thing that he could understand, so I told him. My line of travel is from New York to London, then Calais, Brindisi, Port Said, Ismailia, Suez, Aden, Colombo, Penang, Singapore, Hong Kong, Yokohama, San Francisco, New York. Why do you not go to Bombay as my hero Phileas Fogg did? Monsieur Verne asked. Because I am more anxious to save time than a young wi widow, I answered. You may save a young widower before you return, Monsieur Verne said with a smile. I smiled, with a superior knowledge such as a woman, fancy-free, always will at such insinuations. I looked at the watch on my wrist and saw that my time was getting short. There was only one train that I could take from here to Calais, and if I missed it, I might just as well return to New York by the way I came, for the loss of that train meant one week's delay. If Monsieur Verne would not consider it impertinent, I should like to see his study before I go, I said at last. 
he said he was only too happy to show it me, and even as my request was translated, Madame Verne sprang to her feet and lighted one of the tall wax candles. She started with the quick, springy step of a girl to lead the way. Monsieur Verne, who walks with a slight limb, the result of a wound, followed, and we brought up the rear. We went through the conservatory to a small room, up the which was a winding stair, or, more properly speaking, a spiral staircase. Madame Verne paused at every curve to light the gas. Up at the top of the house, and along a hall that corresponded in shape to the conservatory below, Monsieur Verne went, Madame Verne stopping to light the gas in the hall. He opened a door that led off the hall, and I stepped inside after him. I was astonished. I had expected, judging from the rest of the house, that Monsieur Verne's study would be a room of ample proportions and richly furnished. I had read so many descriptions of the studies of famous authors, and have dwelt with something akin to envy, our space is so limited and expensive in New York, on the ample room, the beautiful hand-carved desks filled with costly trinkets, the rare etchings and paintings that covered the walls, the rich hangings, and, I will confess it, I have thought it small wonder that amid such surroundings authors were able to dream fancies that brought them fame. But when I stood in Monsieur Verne's study, I was speechless with surprise. He opened a latticed window, the only window in the room, and Madame Verne, hurrying in after us, lighted the gas jet that was fastened above a low mantel. The room was very small. Even my little den at home was almost as large. It was also very modest and bare. Before the window was a flat-topped desk. The usual litter that accompanies and fills the desks of most literary persons was conspicuously absent, and the waste-basket that is usually filled to overflowing with what one very often considers their most brilliant productions, in this case held but a few little scraps. On the desk was a neat little pile of white paper, probably eight by ten in size. It was part of the manuscript of a novel that Monsieur Verne is engaged on at present. I eagerly accepted the manuscript when he handed it to me, and when I looked at the neat penmanship, so neat, in fact, that had I not known it was prose, I should have thought it was the work of a poet, I was more impressed than ever with the extreme tidiness of this French author. In several places he had most effectually blotted out something that he had written, but there was no interlining, which gave me the idea that Monsieur Verne always improved his work by taking out superfluous things, and never by adding. One bottle of ink and one penholder was all that shared the desk with the manuscript. There was but one chair in the room, and it stood before the desk. The only other piece of furniture was a broad, low couch in the corner. And here, in this room, with these meagre surroundings, Jules Verne has written the books that have brought him everlasting fame. I leaned over the desk and looked out of the little latticed window which he had thrown open. I could see through the dusk the spire of a cathedral in the distance, while stretching down beneath me was a park, beyond which I saw the entrance to a railway tunnel that goes under Monsieur Verne's house, and through which many Americans travel every year on their way to Paris. Leading off from the study is an enormous library. The large room is completely lined with cases from ceiling to floor, and these glass-doored cases are packed with handsomely bound books which must be worth a fortune. While we were examining the wealth of literature that was there before us, Monsieur Verne got an idea. Taking up a candle and asking us to follow, he went out into the hall, stopping before a large map that hung there. Holding up with one hand the candle, he pointed out to us several blue marks. Before his words were translated to me, 
I understood that on this map he had, with a blue pencil, traced out the course of his hero, Phileas Fogg, before he started him in fiction to travel around the world in eighty days. With a pencil he marked on the map, as we grouped about him, the places where my line of travel differed from that of Phileas Fogg. Our steps lagged as we descended the winding stair again. It had come time to take farewell, and I felt as if I was separating from friends. Down in the room where we had been before, we found wine and biscuit on a little table, and Monsieur Jules Verne explained that, contrary to his regular rules, he intended to take a glass of wine, that we might have the pleasure of drinking together to the success of my strange undertaking. They clinked their glasses with wine, and wished me Godspeed. If you do it in seventy-nine days, I shall applaud with both hands, Jules Verne said and then I knew he doubted the possibility of my doing it in seventy-five, as I had promised. In compliment to me, he endeavoured to speak to me in English, and did succeed in saying, as his glass tipped mine, "'Good luck, Nelly Bly!' Madame Verne was not going to be outdone by her gallant husband in showing kindness to me. She told Mr. Sherard that she would like to kiss me good-bye, and when he translated her kind request, he added that it was a great honour in France— for a woman to ask to kiss a stranger. I was little used to such formalities, or familiarities, as one may deem them, but still I had not one thought of refusing such delicate attention, so I gave her my hand and inclined my head, for I am taller than she, and she kissed me gently and affectionately on either cheek. Then she put up her pretty face for me to kiss. I stifled a strong inclination to kiss her on the lips, they were so sweet and red, and show her how we do it in America. My mischievousness often plays havoc with my dignity, but for once I was able to restrain myself, and kissed her softly after her own fashion. With uncovered heads, and despite our protestations, they followed us out into the cold courtyard, and as far as I could see, I saw them standing at the gate waving farewell to me, the brisk winds tossing their soft white hair. An Adventure of One's Own is written, produced, narrated and edited by Kylie Weber, with original music by Alex Kizenkov. The autobiographical works that I narrate are the product of their original authors. More information about Nellie Bly can be found in the show notes, and Around the World in 72 Days is freely available online. For more information about An Adventure of One's Own, please go to the website womenonadventure.net. See you next episode!